life is scary, but we're scared of failing. We're scared of not being perfect. We're scared of being uncomfortable. And that's where we really discover ourselves and what we're capable of. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Well, Coffee Potters, if you're anything like me, you're going to feel like you could run through fire at the end of this podcast. Today's guest is the unbelievably inspiring Elisa Camplin. Now, Elisa, many of you will know, won Australia's first Olympic skiing gold medal ever at the 2002 Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, when she ended one of the most unlikely journeys in the history of Australian sport. She was 27 and for 22 years had had the ambition of competing in the Summer Olympics. Uh, And it was very late career move at 22 to buy a first pair of skis five years later. And boy, was it a journey we'll talk about in the podcast. She ends up with gold around her neck. Now, she's also someone that's gone on to do extraordinary things after a career in sport. She's been a senior international executive at IBM. She's been uh, deputy chair of the Australian Sports Commission, uh, director of the Collingwood Football Club, you name it. And now doing some amazing work in resilience, mindset, and of course, high performance. There is so much food for thought in this podcast, a really honest and a really inspiring conversation. I hope you enjoy. Here's Elisa. I want to start with where it all began because you're one of the most driven and passionate individuals I've ever met. Now, I know that your early trajectory was centred around the Olympics, but from a young age, was was that always the aspiration? Was gold medal sort of always in your sights? Yeah, um, I grew up in a street of boys, so 16 boys and then my sisters and I. Yeah, so it was, everything in the street was a competition and I was always trying to hold my own. Like I remember my dad teaching me how to box on his hands so that I could hold my own against the boys and defend my sisters. And I remember them saying, let's play army and you be the nurse. I'm like, screw you. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be the sergeant. (laughs) It was was a great environment in which to grow up in. And we had a lot of open space where we lived. It was just a newly developed area. And so there's a lot of old paddocks and things. We used to just run around as kids and certainly the dream of being an Olympic athlete started super early, like five, something like that. But but I think if if you're going back to the beginnings, it would be unfair if I didn't say it all started with my parents because I was very, very lucky to have two great parents. You don't get to pick your parents. And so I just count myself so lucky that my my mum's just so passionate and hardworking and my dad's just a real planner and real thinker and... Um, probably ahead of their time they you know, taught me how to be more resilient as I was growing up and to be responsible and accountable and um, so I think my grounding whether it was 
doing well in life, doing well in school, doing well in sport, you know, a lot of that direction came from them. So I'm pretty lucky. That's incredible. Very good early role models by the sounds of things. Yeah. And so tell me when you, like, I found it really interesting reading that you spent a lot of your early years actually set on the Summer Olympics. It was going to be athletics or gym. Mm -hmm. The the Winter Olympics were sort of a later in life consideration. So tell us about that early focus and then I guess the, the swap to skis. So I started in a little athletics. My parents took my sister and I to ballet and they said she can stay but Elisa can go. (laughs) So (laughs) mum's like, what am I going to do with her on a Saturday morning? And all the boys in the street did little athletics. So I got palmed off and went off to little (laughs) athletics with them and my mum took my sister to ballet. And I was just because I was a sporty, fit kid, you know, I think I started when I was five and I was winning the girls' races by a really long way and so they would put, often put me in the boys' races and then I wouldn't win and my dad would pull me aside and say, hey, it's a lot better to come last in the fastest race than win the easiest race by a mile. And so, you know, the fact that I can even remember those sorts of yeah. advice um, now just goes to show how lucky I was to have, you know, parents that were trying to teach me all the way through. And so I, I loved athletics. I did years of athletics. There's a couple of Olympians from sort of the late 70s, 80s who were at the club that I went to. And then we moved house when I was in grade six and we joined another club in a different suburb, um, Little Athletics. And it was a big part of our family time. You know, we would go to different events on the weekend and, you know, my mum was the coach of our relay team and we'd have people come to our house to train in the big green space that was near us. And, you know, as we were all getting ready for the state championships and under 10 and 11 and so it, it, it sport sort of formed a big part of my life growing up and kind of began to feed itself because I would then do a bit of extra training but you know parents were holding me back so it was never quite as much as the other girls and dad's like you, you've got to grow you've got to go slowly there's no point burning out now and but then I was still doing more than other kids at school. So then I was sort of the best at school and you'd hear people whisper, oh, she could go to the Olympics one mm-hmm. day. And so then you think in your head, oh, I wonder if I could go to the Olympics. And then I remember sort of winning a number of state championships in junior athletics over a few years. And then the, the first year that there was a, a national team selected, I came third and I didn't get selected and I was just absolutely devastated. It was like my first tragedy in life. And, you know, then mum and dad sitting down and helping me to unpack it and picking me up and, you know, saying, well, you know, if you really want these things, this is what it takes. And so it just, it, it just, it propagated itself. I had to earn my chance to train and compete. You know, I had to sit well at the dinner table and speak correctly and try hard at school and if I did all those things then I could go to training and mum and dad would drive me to the, the athletics competition on the weekend and so it was always a balance of what was important in the house um, but yeah maybe that was a, a good technique on my parents mm. uh, because it was I, I had to earn the right and it just made me want want the chance more and it made me hungrier and hungrier and yeah plenty of years in athletics and that didn't end up working out because I sort of had some injuries early on and then slowly started to lose a bit of passion for track and field. And um, my sisters were both playing field hockey for Victoria. So I thought, oh, well, I'll try hockey. And then I got into gymnastics when I was at secondary school. I was very lucky the school had a good gymnastics program and sort of accelerated through gymnastics and then was sort of winning state championship medals and got injured I was like oh no I'm like I'm getting closer and closer and now I'm injured again and 
Then I went off and I started sailing because my best girlfriend was sailing and her boyfriend was a world champion. And so I was just constantly looking for different sports. How am I going to get to the Olympics? How can I get to the Olympics? Ended up at the end of year 12 going back to track and field and um, was training for the marathon. At that point, my old athletics coach had rung me up and said, listen, you've got the running technique like a lady called Rosa Motta and she's just won the Olympic marathon and I really think the marathon, Sydney 2000 Olympics, that's where it's going to be for you. And so I went back wow. to track and field, yeah, training the marathon, running, you know, hundreds of kilometres and technically that worked for me except for the fact that my passion for track and field had gone and I was sort of faking it and it just wasn't quite happening. Mm. And that's when I found aerial skiing. So, yeah, long convoluted journey but I think... When I reflect back, it was getting close and never quite getting there that mm. left me with this sense of unfinished business and this hunger and this burning passion to get to the games that I was willing, by the time I was 19 and found aerial skiing, I was just willing to do whatever it took to not miss that one last opportunity to see if my dream was possible. There's so much I find fascinating in that, one of which is that piece there around you need to want your goal enough, mm. you know, in terms of that, that preparedness, even to talk about that success that you had, but just not being driven enough to want to see it through and do such hard work for such a long period of time. Because people see the, the, the moments where the iceberg comes up above the surface, right, every four years in an Olympic Games, they don't see the, the hours, the weeks, the months that go up to that moment. Yeah. But also think, you know, I know how passionate you are about resilience and, and just hearing you talk about your parents there um, not only am I so surprised you're well-rounded given how balanced they kept you in the household uh, by the sounds of things <laughs> but also you in many ways were an early proponent of growth mindset whether you knew it or not the way that they were teaching you to to shape your response to setbacks in pursuit of your goals was really powerful absolutely and I, it's funny um, now you know I've had so much learning and education in sports psychology and positive psychology and mindset that you know, I can see it now when I look back, maybe I, I'm trying to find it, but being the oldest of three girls, you know, I had a lot of the traditional male chores. I had to take the garbage out, except, and that's fine, except our wheelie bin was on a 45 degree driveway and it was precarious trying to get the bin up and down. If I, when I, I had to mow the lawn and so my dad would take me out and say, well, the most efficient way to mow the lawn is to do it in lines. You go up, down, da, da, da. <laughs> and when I washed the car and had to vacuum it and polish it, and was grossly underpaid, my dad would come and inspect the car before he handed over the money. So it was always about quality as well. So yes, growth mindset, but also mm. doing things to be excellent just because why wouldn't you have pride in your work? So I'm really lucky when I do look back and think, well, craft mastery and, mm. and having pride in, in excellence and, and integrity about the way you do things, the how being as important as the what. Mm. So, yeah, and I think that's really underpinned the tone of who I've become over time. I believe that, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you about um, your passage to the Olympics because mm -hmm. I'm going to read this from my notes because I don't want to get it wrong. You had seven years of hard labour, from what I can gather, moving uh, in pursuit of your Winter Olympic dream. Mm -hmm. In doing so, you broke your collarbone and a hand, you separated your shoulder, you dislocated your sternum twice, you ripped your hip flexor uh, out of your groin, which just sounds disgusting, you broke both ankles, you tore your right knee and cracked 12 ribs. Uh, I mean, that is 
extraordinary. You must have spent more time in a specialist office than you might have done on the training track. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to, like, keep it up. Did you say hand reconstruction? There was a couple of concussions. Oh, my gosh. Two ACL reconstructions. So, yeah, a lot. <laughs> so we, we talk about setbacks in, in the sense of, of not necessarily uh, getting the placing that you might want at a meet or something like that. It's a whole other setback when you're out of competition, you're out of training for a period of time. And some of those injuries would have taken you months to come back from in rehab and everything like that. Yeah. What did you learn in those moments about how to get through the tough times and stay motivated when when you're facing what can sometimes appear like a brick wall in front of you between you and your goal? Yeah, I shouldn't laugh because, you know, any injury is, is, is bad. And to be honest, all of those injuries were spread over my first eight, well, really actually over my 12 years as an aerial skier. Mm-hmm. So, for you know, I started at 19, I'd never seen snow and I had an eight-year plan to get to the Olympics and... A lot of those early injuries came in just simply learning to ski and and then, you know, followed on through as I was rising through the ranks as an aerial skier. In some ways, though, the physical injuries weren't that difficult, mainly because there's physios and people there to help rebuild you. Mm. You know, you go and see a surgeon and they or a doctor and they fix you up. But it was quite often the mental or emotional side of the injury that was difficult. And there was other things too, you know, call them emotional injuries, you know, like a coach not believing in you or not having the funds to get yourself to the next training camp and the amount of work I needed to do off the sporting environment in order to keep that dream alive, they were just as difficult, if not harder, to deal with. And so I think that's what built my fortitude and my strength and my commitment to just get through anything and everything that was getting in my way, which included all of those physical injuries. I think, you know, the big injuries for me were, you know, breaking both my ankles six weeks before the Salt Lake City Olympics. And, you know, my sports psychologist, she was the only one laughing. I was in tears and she's like, oh, well, this is great. Take six weeks to, to fix a bone. We've, it's just in time. Imagine if this was in two more weeks, you'd be stuffed. So <laughs> That's a mindset shift if I've ever heard Absolutely. one. Absolutely. And so then it all became about just sweating it out on the bike and, you know, visualising day in, day out and preparing mentally better than anybody else. And it became an opportunity to control my last six weeks into the games rather than it being random and then that became empowering and propagated belief that it was all still possible. So, you know, that's the positive example of how I was able to handle it. But on the flip side, you know, after coming on from the Olympics, dominating aerial skiing for two years and winning the world championships and being put through the ringer really to go from being the hunted to being the hunter, um, and that was really tough two years to then have just learned enough to be able to cope with the pressures of being the gold medalist and the world number one to then blow out my knee mm. and then to be the first for the first time in 10 years not competing overseas, you know, in the international winter and to be at home and to be isolated from my teammates and my boyfriend and my coaches and I sort of think oh poor me poor me first world problem but actually that was sort of the first time that I was became sort of depressed and you know I takes a long time to to rebound from a you know an ACL reconstruction yeah we see it in footballers and you all of a sudden you're on the outside you're not doing what you normally do and you're in this world of rehab and then to have just got back and then blown my knee out again, I had this window of 18 months where I was really down in the doldrums and that's why I say that, you know, the, the mental and emotional recovery was much harder than the physical side of it. Mm. Really 
trying to find reasons within myself why, you know, to get back up and why to keep going and why to try and defend my Olympic title and why put myself through it again and why risk failure and really get into my inner self and trying to understand what makes me tick and where does my backbone and sense of pride come from and discovering to me that the process is perhaps more important than the outcome and that I need to be able to look myself in the mirror for the rest of my life and that's what perhaps made me or helped me to find the right answers when I was finding things hardest. Because I think what's interesting there is you touched on kind of both sides of the mentality or the mindset spectrum. You talked about you know, visualising. And I think that's actually really interesting that it's not just the physical recovery you're doing. It's also that mental preparedness that you're going, how can I still out-prepare all the other athletes that haven't broken both their ankles six weeks out from the Olympics? But then that other side of how closely you've got to steal your mindset when it's all too easy that the negativity or the doubt could creep in. And I guess I just wanted your reflections on, on how you how you've cultivated that and done that consistently over the course of your life. I feel like we pay a lot of lip service to that. Yeah. People read the secret and joke about the power of, you know, thinking something into, into practice mm-hmm. uh, or into action and reality. And then on the flip side, I think people underestimate the power of the mind in those tough and difficult moments to find a way through if we can ask ourselves the right questions and be really conscious of the environment we're creating around ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm fortunate you know, I had life experiences and, and people around me, whether it was teachers or coaches or parents who helped me to break down experiences and to learn from them and to, you know, to set off on a, on a different foot next time to try and make a different and this, this quest of constant improvement. And my first six years from like day zero on the snow at 19 to trying to get to the Olympics within eight years as an aerial skier, those first six years, I had a lot of really good coaches and I made some great progress. But then it was becoming really obvious that my mental skills were holding me back. And, and that was showing firstly through inconsistency. Mm-hmm. You know, some weeks I would land both my jumps and finish third and then there'd be literally six weeks of falling around down at the back of the pack and driving myself mad, overthinking it, getting angry at myself and getting in my own way mentally. And that's when I realised I needed a sports psychologist. Mm. And when I went off and you know, self-funded a sports psychologist, um, that changed not only the trajectory of my consistency of training and performance and, and really got me to where I needed to be to challenge for that Olympic medal, but it changed my life too. And that was really eye-opening for me and it, uh, it's probably positioned me in the work that I do today because mm. I realised that there's all these tools and techniques that sit within sports psychology that I'd never been taught and my sports psychologist taught me and I needed to commit myself as fully as I was to the physical training and once I was doing this constant mental training and and, and trying to immerse these skills and tools and techniques not just in my sporting day-to-day world but in uh, my whole life so that when I was under pressure it became my new norm that all of a sudden my outlook and um, the way I went about things and, and the, the toolkit that I could draw upon to mm. handle adversity that was coming my way as an athlete and then as a person, it dramatically shifted my ability to perform as an athlete and then to handle life as a, as a person. And it was eye-opening, it was wondrous, but it also made me a little bit sad because it made me realise, well, 
oh, why aren't we taught this in life? Why didn't I learn this in school? Why didn't previous coaches teach me this? And Mm. I feel so lucky now that I was given that view into this whole professional guidance. And so that's where after, you know, retiring from sport and having 20 years in a professional career with IBM, that's where I've turned all my further education to and my Mm. passion to because that everyone in the world deserves that help and to learn those tools and techniques. And so I've taken sports psychology to mindset and to resilience and to achievement and to help people to actually get over the hurdles, to troubleshoot, to bounce back or to bounce forward from adversity. And I hate to change the topic a little bit, but, you know, I've faced probably one of the worst adversities you could in life, which is to lose a child Mm. and my first son was born with congenital heart disease and he died after 10 days in the Royal Children's Hospital and had I not had access to the mental training I did from sport I don't think I would have been even minutely prepared to try and work through that and you know I just feel so grateful that I had some capacity to cope and it doesn't mean it was easy but I, I had some things that I could fall back on and and ways that I could walk through that and it became an opportunity for me to help people around me understand grief more and so between sport and you know the training I've done in positive psychology and doing executive coaching with people I, I now get to help other people and it is so incredibly fulfilling and I just feel like there's generations of people that were never given those mental skills and it's a crying shame and I'm out there trying to change that. <laughs> and I love it. And I think your passion for paying forward the learning that, as you said, changed your own life is is unrivaled. And I think it's sensational that you're out there doing this. And um, we'll, we'll put a link in the podcast to further information on, on the mindset work that you're driving in particular. Um, but you're out there delivering this curriculum with, with multinationals, with organisations all around the world now. Mm. What are you finding people are having the greatest aha moment with? When, when you're handing over the toolkit, what's the bit where they're going, oh, my gosh, if only I'd known this. Thank gosh I know it now, you know? Yeah, I think one is, as I said, there's tools and techniques. And whether it's about um, using trigger and response routines to change behaviours or teaching people how to compartmentalise or to how to decatastrophize or how to focus in the moment to be more mindful when people are feeling uncomfortable or to really feel and to be true to themselves, to stop, take time, focus on that control. There's so many different things to teach people, but really just basic resilience to get through life and not just for them in what they're dealing with, but in helping their team members or their colleagues or their children. People just want a little bit of coaching, a little bit of help and once you show people that there are specific ways to tackle situations, the aha moment comes when they realise they have a lot more in their own control than they recognised. Whether it's how you prioritise and portion up your time and your energy and your resources, whether it's being more firm on decisions that you've made or whether it's communicating or stopping and prioritising yourself or making more time or using my goal planning methodology to finally do and achieve the goals that Mm. they've set out for themselves, whether that's just going out for a walk every day or being more connected with people around them, whether it's thinking more positively, controlling their self-talk a little bit, people go, oh, 
okay, you know, so it's it's coaching people. And I really benefited from having a very holistic coach mm. in my last few years before the Olympics who worked closely with my sports psychologist. And, you know, I really think being a great leader is being a great coach, but also to think holistically about the people you work with, that it's not what you can get from them, but what you can give them. And it's interesting, you touch on something that's quoted a lot when people talk about you uh, during your sporting career, but also in your professional career. And, and that is the power of your focus your ability to put effort and energy where it needs to be. Um, and it's certainly something that your coaches are quoted as saying was one of your most powerful weapons when it came to you as an athlete. But I see that now when I look at the incredible multitude of things you're involved in in your life. I think there's a lot to be said for, as you just touched on there, putting focus into and onto the things we can control and not giving it over to the things that are beyond our control, yeah. uh, which can drive you to near insanity, <laughs> but is so easy to do if we don't have that consciousness and intentionality around it. Yeah. And it's funny, the more I have opportunities and, and different directions that my life could have gone, it's made me more ruthless yeah. about what's important to me, what am I passionate about, what talks to my values, um, what is that holistic balance for me as a, a working mother with children and, and a husband. And I want to live my life with intent and I don't want it to carry me just randomly in certain directions. So I'm constantly checking myself. I'm very attentive to detail. So I what was a strength for me as an Olympic athlete, as a leader, I need to be able to empower people more. And so you know, working with great people is was certainly important to me as an athlete and has continued to be in business. Um, you can't do everything yourself. So, you know, setting expectations, but again, you know, being grateful to people, coaching them. And so, yeah, no, no athlete's an island, but no person is in, in business or life either. So I found having support structures is really important and, and strong role models and mentors. So there's no one secret to success, but certainly taking time to plan and, and to, you know, scenario plan and, and, and identify what it is that you need to, to succeed. But also what do you need to take away? How are you going to create the time? How are you going to have better positive energy around you? How are you going to make space to do the things you want to do? Because you don't get better or new or different if you don't make change. And change is often uncomfortable. But one of the things I've prided myself on is more and more is trying to be continuously courageous. Because, mm. you know, you don't get great outcomes without discomfort and grazing your knees along the way and there's a cool quote in skiing that if you if you don't if you didn't fall over then you weren't trying hard enough (laughs) (laughs) you did that really well occasionally didn't you yeah you landed on the gold but you certainly did that in preparation (laughs) yeah so I, i am lucky i've got so many things that I'm involved in, yeah. whether it's being a company director, running my business and, you know, running growth programs and working in that mindset and thinking well space. But, you know, I, I do have to say no to a lot of things too. And I, I've become more courageous in doing that as well because I, I, I do believe you, you can't have everything. Everything has to be staged with time and, and consideration because otherwise, at least in my case, I'd give too much. And I've had to learn from that, you know, certainly 2016 and 2017, I gave too much. I didn't reserve enough time for me and that's been my learning. And I probably was a little bit too broad and, you know, in 2018 for me, narrow and deeper and digital is, you know, the way I'm going to be able to reach more people and help more people. So, and do that at the standard that I want. You know, I'm always comparing myself to world's best. I really have pride in 
in the process and I want my work to be excellent because I think what you do is a reflection on yourself and I feel like your average is, you know, who you are. So, And I want my average to always be really high standard. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've learnt from the past and uh, now I'm just trying to make sure that whatever I do, I do it, you know, with my full heart and effort and resources so that I can be proud of my doing each chapter of my journey as it unfolds. I have so much love for you and the attitude you do life with. It's awesome. <laughs> um, I wanted to, there's so much of that I wanted to pick up on, but you mentioned values yeah. and you mentioned courage. And I, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about the role that they've played in your decision-making process. Yeah. Like, because uh, what I, one of the things I think is remarkable uh, about you is the, the high performance and the incredibly elite caliber that you've lived your life in in so many different domains, be it the athletic world, be it your transition to business, the directorships you're in, your own business. You know, you, you mentioned just casually there that, you know, you, you had a, a very incredible career with IBM, you know, running $200 million business that you just, you know, stepped into after life as an athlete. Talk to us about what's underpinned your decision on where do you put time, effort and energy and how you've navigated those moments. Because I imagine coming down from the high of winning an Olympic gold medal and competing at a couple of Olympic Games, it must be a pretty challenging moment to go, okay, where next? What next? You know, where do I want to set my sights now? Yeah, that's a great question. So interestingly, you'll remember I said I started skiing when I was 19 yep. and I was already at university. I was on a scholarship at university and I was doing, taking no summer holidays so that I could finish my course quicker so I could get a job to underwrite the ski training. <laughs> In my household growing up, it was always school and sport. Good school report card, you could do the sport. So I was always used to having two things. There so are so many parents are going to take that and run with it, by the way. I'm sorry, <laughs> it helped, it, you know, it, it gives you mental refreshment and physical activity and they offset each other and there's a lot of research that shows if you're physically active then you'll you'll mentally perform better and you'll be more emotionally resilient and so and we ate tried to eat well in our family so going to work at IBM and working all day and then going to night jobs to earn more money and then getting up at five o'clock in the morning to get to the gym didn't leave much time for anything else but I was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing and I think people get frustrated or frustrated or frustrated with their life when what they want their life to be is not what they're doing. So what I'm constantly trying to do is narrow the gap. You know, I sit down and I go, what's going to be on my plate? You know, I can have meat and five veg. And so I work out what's important. And if it's on the plate, it's on the plate. If it's not on the plate, I stop it, I pause it, I lower expectations, I outsource it but it's not on the plate and my time and energy can go to what's on the plate and if other people are trying to put more stuff on my dinner plate I'm like nope sorry plate's full so I'm really I'm really strict about that and when I was coming through as an athlete and working five jobs and working at IBM full-time and training it was the only way I could manage it but I was living the life exactly what I wanted I was doing the dinner plate and so I wasn't looking off going oh I wish I could do that or wish I had more time for this because I was doing what I wanted to do Mm. so I say to people you've got to try to minimize the gap between what you want your life to be and what it is because I have high expectations for myself Um, I'm always pushing myself and driven to achieve things I'm I'm exceptionally outcome orientated so for me I have to to set it up but I mentioned earlier that holistic is important to me. I I want to be there for my children and 
whilst it's been with young kids, it hasn't been much time for my husband and I over the last few years um, or enough time for myself. I've been correcting that now. So I recognise that I need a balance of things. I invest in people in the team around me Mm -hmm. professionally and also in the home life. So the, the things that don't matter to me, like doing the ironing and mowing my lawn I outsource that (laughs) things that other people ask me to do and it's not really in the space I want to be I'll say oh thank you that's very flattering but no it won't work for me right now so I've learnt strategies and techniques to protect my dinner plate and align my time and energy and resources with the life that I want to want to leave there's been some big pivotal moments where I've been just offered some amazing opportunities and I really wanted to jump but I knew that I wouldn't let myself fail and in order to succeed I would have to sacrifice too much and recognising that sometimes you have to let things go for the greater good. To be a working mum means that, you know, I've got to make sure I can still look after both. Um, mm. That was kind of scary. That's when I realised, oh, you know, you, you can't pursue every dream you ever had over the course of your life. So, but. Now I'm like looking at how I can how I can stage things, and and it certainly, as you said, brought me back to my values. You know, for me, it's not about wealth; it's economic security. Um, for me, it's not about success; it's about ongoing personal growth. Certainly, effervescence and having joy and fun and laughter in my life is important. I love that. I mentioned excellence earlier. Integrity and independence are important to me. So, I'm constantly just testing my gut how am I feeling why does this not feel right is this against my values and you know sort of constantly trying to learn and improve and ask myself provocative questions so I guess that's a some form of self-improvement and and wanting to live a a real life and the life that I want to lead not what other people might expect of me I like that defining your own path not letting anyone else do that for you yeah Sometimes, I'm, you know, I feel like I have to be super brave and super courageous and vulnerable and that's certainly scary, but I think it would be easy for me to be safe and probably I'm compounding my life by expecting more and more and more of myself. But, yeah, there's times to push and there's times to sit. And I must say it's a, it's a small side story, but, you know, when I got pregnant with each of my children, that was quite provocative for me, particularly the first time I got pregnant, I was in the corporate workplace. I was running strategy and transformation for IBM Global Services in the UK. And when I flagged that I was pregnant and I would be taking maternity leave in six months, all of a, time, all of a sudden I was taken off the, you know, the accelerated curve wow. as a corporate professional. And it's like my boss at the time was saying, don't fret, like the minute you're back, you know, the next line of promotions, you know, it, it's, it's sort of all there. And and it made sense, but that was when I really realised I was getting off the acceleration curve and perhaps into a point of consolidation or broadening, mm-hmm. giving breadth and perhaps deeper and different meanings to my life. And that frightened the pants out of me. And it was probably one of the most courageous things that I had to do. Um, but then I realised that actually um, consolidation taught me an incredible amount mm-hmm. about myself and that time thinking and, and changing trajectories of my life is exciting and adventurous and I guess that's why we get decades to live and to learn <laughs> <laughs> to realise that it, it, it's all of these things that, that tell our story. I was just going to ask you too, just hearing you talk about courage, particularly in the context of a country where we can sometimes get 
lost in that conversation around tall poppy syndrome and wanting to cut down people that have ambition how important has it been for you to, to almost curate the people that are around you so they're they're like-minded whether they're driven or otherwise in that sense of values and supporting you in whatever way you wanted to take life and the heights to which you wanted to lead it and the breadth you wanted to live it with how important is that support structure or even just the crew of people in your life been um absolutely massive And I think it lends to why it's so important to choose carefully who you surround yourself with. Over time, I've gravitated away from different people. You know, as a teenager, you know, there was just sorts of behaviour that I was like, oh, that's not me. And I just left and went and found different people to hang out with, um, cultivating lots of different groups. You know, if the kids in the schoolyard weren't doing it for me, I had people in sport and I had the kids in my local area and family, friends, children. And so making sure that you're conscious of the energy people are giving, that they're adding positively to your life and they're people who align with your values. Integrity is very important to me and I am fairly self-motivated. I hold myself quite accountable and I try to associate with people who don't take advantage of that but actually help to propel me and to encourage me and... I've been very lucky. I've had amazing business professionals that I've worked with in the boardroom. I've worked with some outstanding chairmen in my corporate career. I've had just some of the most amazing male and female mentors and advocates, um, people that have taught me things. But it all sort of starts with the individual. You need to seek it out. You need to be passionate. You need to give and receive. You need to do something with what people give you if people see that you're motivated and you're passionate and you're trying really hard they're excited by that and they they do want to help so I think you attract what you give out Mm. to a certain degree but I think people also need to be a little more courageous in saying I don't need this negativity or this person's really not positively contributing to my life or I need to shut this down and I need to pivot in a different direction now because as much as people can enhance your life, they can also be be draining. So trying to even just, that can be really hard with lifelong friends or family, but just taking some small steps back and, and putting some barriers in place, um, putting some protection and communicating to people how you feel mm. is important. But I certainly am an advocate that you need to, to be proactive and go and find what you need um, and to seek out mentors. You know, often I'll say to people, oh, do you have a mentor? And I so oh no like have you uh, how many people have you asked have you searched out who would you like to be a mentor have you contacted them so I think sometimes you you need to um you need to seek what you need Mm. and it's funny I know you have some great mentors in your life too but it you're one of them (laughs) that's very sweet of you but you don't know when they're going to be there for you or what you're going to need um and certainly, you know, through the tragedy of losing my first son, I would definitely recommend people pick your life partner wisely. Don't be in a rush because <laughs> you don't know what challenges it's you're so going to face. Yeah. And yep. uh, you need good people on the journey. Absolutely. And you and Ollie are an incredible partnership, without a doubt. Oh, I fell on my feet with meeting my wonderful husband. No, isn't, it, isn't it good to be able to say that too? I agree. <laughs> you got to take your time. Now, I could talk to you for hours, but I'm very mindful of the fact our time is coming to a close. And there's two final questions I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. The first is for people who are looking at your journey, and I'm going to describe it as one of, of excellence, you know, full stop, whether, whether it might be that they're pursuing a, an Olympic medal themselves or whether they're just wanting to reach the heights of what they're doing in their career. Mm-hmm. What's the best 
bit of advice you can give them uh, as to, to how to start on that sort of trajectory? Oh, how to start? <sighs> well, I, it'd be hard for me not to gravitate straight away to goal planning. You know, actually identifying what you want to achieve and then find an expert who can help you. That expert can then help you break down the elements that you're going to need to succeed. Often things just seem so overwhelming and it's really hard to start. And And I find too in helping other people achieve their goals that they, they set the goal too big in the first place. So I say to people, don't try to run a marathon, just do a five kilometre fun run in three months time and find a running group and develop a habit around getting up every day or every second day and going out for a walk. And then in the third week, like go for a trot and, you know, don't burn yourself out and wake up so sore you can't walk the next day. So I think having a goal plan in place and getting sort of an expert or a coach or or a friend to help you. And it doesn't, doesn't need to be bigger than a friend or your partner or your parent or a colleague to just tell them the goal you know the statistics and research around sharing a goal unbelievable likelihood of achievement is just so high yeah and to make that fun i think people sort of give up too easily too quickly you know like oh i thought i was going to have done this by now and it didn't quite happen it's like well keep going you know no one said you had to stop so yeah i often encourage people not not to lie down at the first hurdle, go under it, push over it, jump around it, like break that hurdle in pieces. I think it's actually those challenges and those difficult moments, those obstacles where actually we're going to learn most about ourselves and those will be those moments you'll look back on time that will be the turning points that actually really helped you to achieve your goals. Oh, I love that advice. Awesome. And final question I wanted to ask, for those listening, what's the call to action that you'd like to leave them with? Be brave, be courageous. Uh, I think life is scary, but we're scared of failing. We're scared of not being perfect. We're scared of being uncomfortable. And that's where we really discover ourselves and what we're capable of. You know, for me, it wasn't about winning an Olympic gold medal. It was about understanding how good could I really be? Could I really do it? And you'll never, ever know unless you push into that frontier of anxiety and fear and excitedness and opportunity all at once and on the other side of courageous is amazing it might not be the outcome that you expected but it'll be the things that change your life you'll learn more in those moments of courage than you ever will in the high points that come your way oh i can't thank you enough for your time today this has been so inspiring i'm sitting here feeling so fired up but also going i want to listen to this two three times because i want to sit there and take notes and think about how I want to apply what you've shared. I'm so grateful for your generosity and I'm just in awe of not just what you've gone and done and the breadth, as I said, the, the calibre and the breadth, but also the the philosophy with which you live your life. You have such a commitment to paying it forward, to giving back, a passion to be purposeful in the way that you apply yourself and I really deeply admire it. So thank you so much. Thanks, it's been a privilege. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.